Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rated LGBT Radio, and yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, Happy post-Thanksgiving, although if you were listening last week, we did a Thanksgiving show for you anyway, um, and we're certainly coming back afterwards. Uh, Last week, we covered a children's book, and uh, so we delved into the realm of literature. Today, we go back to music with an incredibly exciting artist. Um, Can't wait to talk to them. Uh, Their name is Edmund. Uh, they are, um, they have over one, let me get the numbers right. They have over 7 million streams to date of their work. Um, and that's only over the past few years. Their songs are melodious. They're poetic. They're beautiful. Just, uh, just gorgeous, gorgeous music, especially if you like R&B, um, and they're really exploding into the music scene right now and getting a lot of people's attention. Uh, Edmund was named one of the 20 R&B artists to watch by Complex, and uh, Apple had, has listed them as an R&B star of 2023, even though we're almost done with 2023. Um, and also, uh, Edmund was nominated for the Serious XM Black Canadian Music Award. Um, the first single out uh, was, I think, two years ago called Down For It. Um, it was very much of a um, kind of a pop anthem, um, uh, you know, self-worth anthem. Um, and then Good Life followed that. Look at what I'm doing to you. And now um, they have put out a, an EP called Risk, and a lot of those songs are on it. Um, it's a gorgeous listen. Um, it is available on iTunes. I already bought mine, and you should be running out and buying yours too. And after our conversation, I'm sure you will. Um, also, Edmund uh, wrote an article that was published by GLAAD and um, also is now currently running in the L.A. Blade. So um, you'll want to check that out. It is a letter to the world. Um, it is like their music, very poetic and affirming and um, an important read. Um, we've got Inman waiting on deck, but before we bring them on, I do want to welcome Brody Levesque to the show. Brody is the co-host here. Um, he brings us the news and coincidentally, he is the editor of the L.A. Blade magazine, which is the only everyday news magazine you should be reading, and you can find that at LABlade.com. But in the meantime, here's Brody. Hey, Rob. Good afternoon, good morning, good day, and hello to all of our listeners across the globe. We appreciate you very much, and thank you for listening, downloading our podcast, and sharing it. It's greatly appreciated. Um, in the news, um, I guess I'll touch on the politics first. Embattled New York Representative George Santos made his case on the House floor earlier today 
why he should not be tossed out of Congress, but it didn't make a difference. They voted to hear the resolution uh, to ex- uh, basically expel him from the House. So the next up on that will be, of course, the vote tomorrow on the House floor. So we're waiting to see, you know, exactly how that's going to turn out. Um, it is widely expected Ready? that – yeah, go ahead. Yeah, do we have any idea whether we think that's going to be successful or not? At this point, um, based on some of the numbers we've got, it probably will be. It requires a two-thirds majority of the House. But the problem is that there is some serious pushback, uh, unsurprisingly, from some of the more radical elements in the Republican Party saying that he hasn't been convicted, that this is setting a bad precedent, and it's, you know, we need to not do this. Um, And, uh, you know, that came from literally representative after representative after representative. Um, So there's that. Some of the Democrats who initially had supported him uh, have pulled back their support. There was a scathing 56-page report that came from the House Ethics Committee that was released last week, and it basically details what a grifter this guy is. And so I really don't think that at this point, you know, we're going to see much coming out of it. Um, so we're just going to have to wait and see how the whole thing plays out. Uh, so that's it for the political front. <laughs> Once yeah. again, drama in the house. Um, up in uh, the well, our guest today in my native land, well, her adopted homeland, but my native land of Canada. We've had some uh, problems in British Columbia. Libs of TikTok, we love her. Targeted a non-binary teacher in British Columbia at Pitt Meadows Secondary School, which is uh, in Greater Vancouver. Uh, It got so bad that after she amplified this whole situation over this non-binary teacher, a local mother uh, started harassing it. I mean, seriously harassing the teacher. It got to the point where the RCMP, that's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is our federal police force, uh, basically issued a warning to her knock it off. Uh, Well, Libs of TikTok, of course, took and ran with that. Um, Libs of TikTok, of course, is infamous uh, for, you know, not directly engaging so she can get in trouble, but, you know, implying all these things that end up with other people issuing bomb threats, death threats, threats, you name it. So that's going on also (laughs) in Vancouver, which has suddenly become a little bit of a hotspot. We don't know why. But uh, on Saturday, the day after Black Friday, there was a high-speed chase um, involving a tractor. Now, this didn't involve the RCMP. It was the local constable uh, police. But the whole reason was the guy driving the tractor was an anti-LGBTQ protester, and he'd been making a bunch of noise over a sexual orientation and gender identity policy, which was set uh, to be reapplied into British Columbia schools, and a whole bunch of the anti-LGBTQ types are upset about it. There was a protest. This guy apparently threatened some people, and then he tried to do a getaway in a tractor. So there's a picture on the website of the tractor flipped over on its side. 
with some provincial cops standing around it, looking at it. And, of course, I'm just shaking my head going, yeah, there's really no stopping this now, is there? Um, On a little bit more of a serious note, um, we're seeing some other things occur uh, in India that are not good. The Supreme Court in India has agreed to listen to a petition uh, to appeal their ruling on same-gender marriage. Um, They had uh, ruled last month against marriage equality, and now suddenly they are willing to take another look at it. Uh, However, there's no betting one way or the other with that court. It's a fairly conservative court, uh, what they're probably going to end up doing with it. So that's kind of anybody's guess on that. Um, And a a couple of other stories. So, Brody, before you move on from that, so is this a good thing or bad thing that they're listening to the appeal? It sounds like it's a good thing. It could be a good thing. That's the problem with India's Supreme Court. It could be, but then it could also be bad because unlike our Supreme Courts in Canada and in the U.S., their rulings can go into different you know, time zones, basically, and that's what's got everybody really concerned. Uh, there has been some earlier rulings by the court in terms of how queer Indians are treated, but you know, if they decide to go all the way into the far right, some of those rights might actually get taken away. So that's got people very nervous. So, yes, it could be a good thing, but it could also be a really bad thing. We don't know. Um, in Missouri, got to love this attorney general, the attorney general, uh, Andrew Bailey in Missouri, joined with 18 other states' attorney generals, all Republican. And they are fighting a proposed federal rule that would protect LGBTQ youth in foster care and also provide them with necessary services. And so that's becoming also very problematic as well. Um, The attorney generals are arguing in their letter to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that the proposed rule, which requires states to provide safe and appropriate placements, with providers who are appropriately trained about, you know, SOGI issues and gender identity issues um, is amounting to religion-based discrimination and violates freedom of speech. Bottom line is the attorney generals of these states are saying it doesn't matter, you know, if the people that are playing a role in foster care, okay, don't agree with homosexual lifestyle, okay? And, you know, it it would basically erase these kids' chances, uh, you know, in the foster care system, which they're already combating all sorts of other trauma being in the foster care system. This just simply adds on to it. So the AGs are basically arguing that, no, we're not going to accept this rule that foster parents have to agree with the homosexual lifestyle or transgenderism. And this is actually in the letter. Uh, to the Health and Human Services Secretary, uh, Javier Basira. So that's going on in Missouri. And uh, coming out of Bailey, the AG there, that's not a a stretch. This guy is hugely homophobic, transphobic, uh, and he's, you know, led the way in Missouri for all sorts of nonsense. Um, And then the last thing I wanted to tell our yeah, readers before about. You, before you, before, Brody, before you move on, as a former foster care parent, I want to say that that is horrendous 
what they're proposing. That is so dangerous to these kids, I can't even tell you. That, um, to your point, they already are coming from some traumatic and dysfunctional place. And the foster care system has never been known as a stellar safe haven for kids anyway. This will make it worse. This will make it a hellscape for those kids. Um, and, and I'm hoping that our advocate groups um, stand up in a very, very strong way against that. That is absolutely awful, what, what um, you just reported on. So just a little commits from the peanut gallery here, but no. Um, anyway, you were saying. <laughs> I want to give a shout-out to the student body in Coconut Creek, Florida, Northern Broward County at Monarch High School, who this week walked out of class, and I'm talking literally three-fourths to the student body, walked out of class and headed uh, to the football field, and they were protesting in support of their trans uh, and non-binary siblings at the school, and then the most important thing was they were protesting on behalf of their principal, a 25-year veteran of the Broward School District, who had been reassigned off campus because of an investigation launched based on a complaint that he allowed a trans female to participate on the girls' volleyball team. Well, not only did the school district zap him, but the school district also went after the assistant principal, the athletic director, and an information management technician, okay, and also another coach at the school. So they were all bounced off of school property, basically, into non-functions. And the whole reason Broward County Schools is saying is because they may have violated, okay, the law that Governor DeSantis had signed two years ago banning trans youth athletes from participating in sports, okay? The mother that called it in, by the way, we've more or less figured out who that was, unsurprisingly, another mom for liberty, literally, type. Uh, and, yeah, uh, the, the law was actually signed two years ago. It does ban transgender female, uh, actually trans athletes, so both trans guys and girls, uh, from participating in sports. This is the first time that we're aware of in the state of Florida where a principal basically said, oh, no, I'm not doing this, and is now more or less reassigned and probably will end up losing their job if the board determines that the state law was, in fact, violated. So welcome to Ron DeSantis' Florida, but at the same time, I want to give a shout-out to the kids of Monarch High School there in Coconut Creek. Well done, guys. And don't be surprised if in a future show, in the not-too-distant future, we get some of those kids on the show. We are actually actively looking to do that. So um, we may get even closer to that story than uh, just reporting it. Right, Brody? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Just want to get confirmation on that. Okay. So now we are going to pivot to the world of not only music, but absolutely wonderful, beautiful music. Um, this is music that uh, is melodic, poetic. Um, it's sensational and and complex. 
um, it isn't isn't for the the bubblegum crowd amongst us. Um, but uh, with that, I want to welcome to the show, uh, Edmund. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thank for you so much me. for being Thank here. You for the warm welcome. Thank you for the oh, warm my, welcome my and pleasure. thank you for the incredible intro. The intro was so awesome. My cheeks were hurting. I was smiling so hard. Uh, good. Well, well, I've been. Uh, uh, I mean, it's listen to your music. It's I'm hard pressed to get the right adjectives out about it because it's it's difficult to explain. It's you. It's there's so many levels to it, and uh, both emotionally, artistically. Uh, even genre-wise, it's, um, like I said, I keep using the word complex, which is probably not a fair word to use. But I, would, I want to take you back to um, where you started. You were, were born in Canada, as I understand it, um, in a Somali community there. Um, and that, that seems to still be present in your music today. Um, what was that like and how has that influenced you? Yeah, I feel so lucky to have grown up that way. I think um, Toronto has a bunch of um, different first-generation immigrant communities. I think the city is now 50% foreign-born, and I was lucky to grow up around a lot of Somali musicians and a lot of Somali creatives. My mother was a wedding planner, and so oftentimes she'd be booking the talent for weddings and the talent would stay at the house, and so a lot of the musicians me and my Somali friends grew up listening to from back home would be like um, auntie or uncle who were there for the weekend for the wedding in town. And um, I just, I, I thank my parents so much because they really instilled this like love for my culture. I can, I'm really fluent in my mother tongue and that was on um, purpose and really intentional on my parents' part. And they never, they never really allowed me to have um, the, a story that I think some kids get when like you have assimilation or the thought of assimilation like kind of beat over your head for lack of a better phrase I, I never I never had that um like distaste for my culture I was always really prideful about my heritage and I can 1000% relate it to my parents and we come from a, a religious Muslim community as well but my parents were super unorthodox and just like really open-minded and all the things I think as an adult you are told about what Muslim people are like or what their interests are um, and so, yeah, I think they really served to, like, really instill some hard truths that even in my adulthood have become really unshakable for me, for sure. Oh, that's, no, that's awesome. And I, I love the, just, you know, diving into the, the, the cultural aspect of it. I think for any young person, any child, that being exposed to cultures especially if it's where their heritage comes from. But I, I, for example, grew up in Italy and which was, you know, American kid transported to Italy and, and was exposed just to the Italian culture and through the appreciation of this is something that not everybody is doing that people are raised in one place, think that's the whole world and don't even question the fact that there are other cultures, other ways of doing things. Um, don't get to appreciate just the knowledge that there is a thing such as culture. Um, one thing, and forgive my ignorance on this, but um, what is culturally the Somali attitudes towards 
queer people, LGBTQ people? Is it accepted generally? Is it verboten? What what is what was the what was the um, exposure and talk that you were exposed to as a young child growing up? I think that Somali culture, much like a lot of cultures from the global south, I think that something that the West really gets wrong is that people really pride themselves on their privacy and and not um, uh, intruding on other people's business. And so mm-hmm. I found growing up a lot of the time that um, making assumptions about someone's sexuality or like talking about or wondering about if someone was queer was worse than if someone actually was queer and not telling people about it. Um, it was kind of this like, don't ask, don't tell. Like you always, we would always have the uh, who had like the special friend or um, your cousin who was very obviously a transgender woman, there was always like some uh, origin story, hero story around how it happened and why this is a specific case where we have to honor the pronouns. But uh, if you ask people outright what their beliefs are, their beliefs might not, might be, might be homophobic, might be transphobic, might not be what you think, but in action, I've noticed that um, I've never really seen people uh, action those beliefs or action those feelings. It's almost as if like mm-hmm. our, our manners supersede the beliefs. And so uh, it, it would be more unsavory to bother someone than it would be to actually come out um, and say this person's queer. And so I think for me, I always knew who the queer family members were. I think everyone knew and there was always like a sort of respect level around it. It was just a thing if you spoke about it. It was like an unspoken thing. Right. I can relate to that because I think just whether it was going on in the United States at the time or not, that that was kind of the way that my family dealt with those types of things too. It wasn't talked about. It was just sort of there and understood. And the people in our lives who were now looking back, I know that were LGBTQ, it it was treated exactly the way you described. Um, How did that affect you with kind of an inner knowledge of yourself in that, even though, you know, nobody was going to ask you and they were giving you your privacy, um, was there a struggle at all of who you were finding yourself to be versus who you felt like the people around you expected you to be? For sure. I think, I think I've had different iterations of my relationship with it. I think um, growing up, uh, I was, I felt one way. And I think as I got older, I started to, uh, think about my relationship to my queerness in relation to my parents in a different way. I think the more I learned about my uh, the history of my country and colonialism and capitalism and white supremacy and how, like, my great-great-great-grandparents lived in a Somalia where queer people and trans people were free and where they were respected and that the homophobia or the transphobia that I could recognize in my community or in my family wasn't their fault. And so I think... I went from being this like a uh, secret anger or resentment that I had as a young person that as I learned more, it became like more of like a, a sympathy and an empathy that I had for my family and my parents. Like I feel I was raised by a Libra man who is by all intents and purposes, the most metrosexual man I've ever met. Like he, he is very um, feminine in all the ways you would think about how to describe a man. He's not really masculine. And, and I, I think about how that, that, knowing who he is, I wonder, I would wonder, is my dad 
non-binary is my dad family center and just the idea that I know that I get to live in a world and have an experience where I have the privilege of figuring that out for myself and the privilege of even through the internet and through community online or even through um, living in LA right now by myself I have the opportunity to, to explore I, I I think I have more of like a, a a sadness now in me for my parents and mm-hmm. for my my relatives in the fact that I know that there are parts of them that they might not ever get to explore in this lifetime and I know that it's not their fault you know no I know I know exactly what you're talking about um, I wrote a piece um, and I'll, uh, I'll get this to the point you were making um, a few months ago about Karen Carpenter um, there was a documentary out about her and um, you know, absorbing the documentary and talking to the documentary filmmaker and the material um, and kind of what I was writing about was there are aspects of Karen Carpenter that were really non-binary, um, you know, mm-hmm. that, that um, she had been forced into this image and everything else, and that really exacerbated the other issues with anorexia and, and all that. And it, it, as I was writing that, I felt sad that you know she was in a time where she didn't feel like she could step out and explore herself which in her case was a more masculine side that was really evident if you look at her history growing up and how she was as a younger person she was very confident in being more masculine than she was allowed to be or or felt she was allowed to be so yeah, that that sadness. I, mean, I want to pivot a little bit to your music and to your lyrics uh, that, for me, that I found as as a fan and a listener, um, you the relationships that get presented throughout really a lot of the the different songs are they're not black and white. They're not you know one to the other. You know, it's like we're the the good guys, you're the bad guys. Um, or I'm I'm the the saint in the relationship and you're the awful person. They're very complex, and even the ones where the person seems to be trying to push somebody away, you can tell in the song. With the other hand, they're actually almost trying to draw them closer at the same time. Um, how do you approach relationships in your music organically? And is that a fair assessment of that complexity, or am I reading things into it? No, actually, I feel like you've understood it so well, and you've. Uh, I'm appreciative that you listened. I'm appreciative that anything resonated or landed enough for you to even get that 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 vibe or that um, synopsis from it, because that's genuinely how I feel and how I look at love. I think when I first signed, uh, the question that everybody would talk about was how what, how would I fit in the R&B space? Because uh, initially the first group of songs I was making were like Jersey Club songs and really experimental like electronic things. And I think that I, I would always initially only write about everything but love. And when I was challenged to write about love, I was confronted with the fact that the R&B space was really in this energy of like um, – Toxic is king, and and that the, the, we're in this era. People to call it the ghosting era, and I feel less than you, and leave before you're left. And 
I think that I'm I'm a really reserved person and I'm not someone who finds it really easy to express how they're feeling. And so for me, music is so scary and this job is so scary. And so if I'm going to do it and if I'm going to participate in this space, I want to always view it as a service and a service to me through this, this genre could only be done through honesty. And I wanted my music to be the place where uh, even the people who've known me my whole life, like the parts of me that they haven't been, they can't access interpersonally, they'd be able to tap into. And it's not always black and white. The, the other person isn't always in the wrong. Sometimes it is you. And so I know that through heartbreak, heartbreak, my my feelings weren't linear, and so I really wanted to capture my genuine thoughts. Like I, I wrote out the music chronologically. I mapped out um, the the disintegration of like my first ever mm-hmm. love, my first ever heartbreak, and I wanted it to feel really, really honest. And I, I'm a trans person who fell in love with another trans person, and I just felt like if I'm presenting this love story, I want it to be honored. I want it to feel as complex as as it is for us I just think that even as like a in the cultural zeitgeist I think there's this like we've been queer and trans people have been like de-romanticized you know like our romance doesn't matter mm-hmm. and our love stories don't matter and so I I felt everything I was feeling in this relationship so deeply that I just wanted to make sure that it was palpable and that if that meant sounding pathetic because I felt pathetic and writing lyrics that I cringe when I hear back sometimes it was my truth in the moment, and I'm I'm proud and honored that I, I have a job where I can pour stuff like that out there, and it's affirmed by other folks who have also gone through the same thing. And so more and more every day, I think when other folks hear it and I hear other folks say that they feel the same or that they felt the same, um, it makes me feel um, less and less uh, less and less like tight. I have a less of a tight hold on it. And I feel more open to surrendering it to the world. Yeah, it's and it's not pathetic at all. I mean, that's the thing I would say. It's it is, you know, it's almost it it almost shines the light on how pathetic some renditions of music are because they're trite, because they they you know make it all like you know a song that you sing when you are just you know really want to be aggressive against somebody else that they're that but it's not not full i mean i love the the different ironies in it for example your your uh song on your new ep uh hate which you actually have uh a new second version of it out but the irony for me in that song is you know it's called hate but what you're hating is the fact that you're so in love with somebody that your head is telling you you shouldn't be um you know at least that was my my how what mm-hmm. I walked away from with it, and um, and I, I, I can't even tell you how many times how much I relate to that in terms of attachments I've had. Um, also, um, look at what I'm doing to you is like so richly complex. Um, the relationship that that it's describing mm-hmm. in that. Um, I want to go back though to the the song that you released a few years ago, um, Down For It, which is kind of a um, sort of a relatively soft-spoken but still hugely powerful empowerment song. What, what was your inspiration for it? 
Wow, Down For It. Down For It was the first ever song I ever finished. And so I always joke to folks that I'm not one of those, like, studio artists who are always, like, pumping out 80 songs or they'll do, like, 150 songs for a project and pick their favorite 10. Most of what I make, people will hear, and I appreciate that type of intentionality behind the music. And Down For It was one of the... Yeah, one of the first songs I ever finished and recorded, and I, 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 when I listen back to it, I feel like I sound so young on it and so timid. But I, I love that that track because that's how I was feeling. I was so new, and I, I wrote that song kind of as like a personal prayer to myself because um, I had this life where I was a, a, a student in Maine and an organizer, and then I had caught this uh, really bad case uh, for doing direct action in in Portland, and essentially was like had to leave school, lost my visa, had to go home and join this music program behind my parents' back. And then I think it was just my, it was just my way of kind of manifesting for myself and promising myself and promising the folks in the community that had like surrounded me at the time that I was going to see something through and that I was going to finish this thing because music had been introduced in my life, uh, I think like seven or six years before I'd ever recorded a single song. And I tried to say no to it for years. And I think when I was making down for it, it was me saying to everyone that I was terrified and that I was still the shy, soft-spoken person everyone around me knew, but that I was going to be committing myself and promising me and promising them that that I was going to try my best and try my hand at this thing in a really meaningful way. Yeah, it's it, it kind of is a great intro song to your work. I mean, it it's um, because there's there's definitely an arc, and, and you get a little bit of the the almost the concept that you're talking to yourself and talking yourself through it. In other words, it's not coming off like you know Superwoman popping out and you know I'm down to fight all the criminals and all that. It's more you know, I need to be saying this to myself kind of delivery, um, which, again, is more relatable and in many ways kind of deeply inspiring. Um, another one that you came, up, came out with um, in the interim of that was Good Life. Um, that one also seems to have a lot of nuances. What, what was the inspiration behind Good Life? Good Life was the first song that we did for this project, and when I recorded it, I was so scared of the song. I didn't record anything for another eight months after that. Um, I had met up with the executive producer of the project, who's also my A&R um, at the label, and I had just been avoiding a bunch of work because it was right when that heartbreak had happened. And he kind of called me out on the fact that I wanted to write about everything but love, and that love was the one thing that was kind of throwing my life in this loop and so and I told him that I don't think I didn't think that I could write a love song all I wanted to talk about was how much (laughs) I hated how well my ex was doing and I was just like preaching to him and kind of barking to him over the phone about how um, I I just finished filming Down For It the music video for Down For It and I'd come home and my ex who wasn't really doing very much when we were together and who's like career I had invested like a lot of time in helping and trying to like uh, motivate like the night that I filmed my first music video like a music video that they had just so happened to be in went viral and they were all over like my favorite artists and actors pages and it was like 
this like poetic irony. I went up my house and they were all over the bus stops and I was just, I went into Sephora and there was a photo of them in there. And I was just like, does this happen to everybody on their first ever heartbreak? I just don't think this is normal. And so I've just been like kind of telling all my friends, like I thought like bad things happen to bad people and my ex is doing so well and I know I'm supposed to be happy for them, but I don't wish them well. And I, we had met up for a closure conversation about uh, like our relationship seven months after the breakup and all they wanted to tell me about were all the great things that were happening to them, how they were moving to Paris and how they were moving on with this agency. And meanwhile, in my life, like because of the heartbreak, because of the way that the relationship disintegrated, like I was at an all time low, like everything around me was falling apart. I didn't know if I still wanted to make music. And so Chris had challenged me and was just like, write one song, make one song. And if you don't like it, then fine. You don't have to touch love again and we make good life. And I loved it and it scared the crap out of me. <laughs> what, you know, it's so, it's, I mean, it's, I, I absolutely love how your process is where you're living your life and, then it comes out in in just this very naked song almost. I mean, it's just you know, it's like because it's it's there. Everything you're describing. If somebody listens to the song and hears what you just said about it, it's there's no way they can't get that spirit out of the song. It just um, it's it's you are such a brilliant channel for the emotion and in that process making it poetic. Um, because it's 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 not it's not like somebody sitting there whining about their past relationship. It is it, it turns into poetry. Um, uh, then thank uh, you, thank you, thank you. Oh, it, it's, thank you! Oh my God, it's like it's, it's such a pleasure. Um, what uh, obviously the other songs that we were talking about? Um, look at what I'm doing to you. Um, and the um, the other songs on your EP and Hate um, are also organically coming out of relationships. They feel like they're stronger, though. Like you feel more assured in them. Is that is that true, or are they? One thousand percent, one thousand percent, and I feel like that's why I love that I get to release everything I make. Like I do think that I genuinely believe in the dialectic relationship between like artist and listener, and I and I like don't agree with people who are really like who have all these fluffy things to say about. Uh, wanting to be mysterious and all this stuff. Like, if I didn't want to share my music with people, I'd leave those files on my computer. But I do, and we all do. And we all want to share, and we all want to feel heard and seen, and we all want to relate. And I think that my – I hope in doing this thing where I'm kind of – I feel like I'm letting people in on my rough dress in real time and letting them watch me learn and grow and, like, stretch my tentacles as a songwriter and as a singer. I want for folks to kind of feel like – because – I know that a lot of my peers, even if I'm younger than them, a lot of them started when they were in their teens, and so folks have gotten to kind of grow up with them. And so if they present all these pristine things, they have, like, a story and they have, like, a, a arc of theirs that they've been able to watch over the years. And for me, I know folks are, are meeting me for the first time, and so I feel more of a vested interest to be honest and vulnerable and raw in a in a total holy way. And so um, I, I love when folks hear a down for it. They can hear that there were – 
two years in between um, that song and, and, and this project. And I hope that it can serve as like a, a, a visual marker for people that they, if this growth could happen during this amount of time, that they stick with me long enough to, to just like hold me down as I grow even more. Because with the, the first round of songs, Sound For It and Look At What I'm Doing To You, I made them in a room with my friends that I met in Toronto. And then with the the EP that we put out, I got to work with producers who made some of the songs that I grew up with and who were some who wrote some of the best songs I've ever heard in my whole life. And so when we were when we started the project after we did Good Life, all of the other songs on the project were made within the same month. We all camped out in the studio together. I mapped out my heartbreak with like texts, voicemails, emails, and we would cry, we would share stories of love. Like I wanted everyone in the room to feel enmeshed in the love story and I wanted to be a sponge and learn like what their favorite songs are and what good strong structure is. I genuinely love pop music. I love love songs and I love people and so the student in me loves that people get to see me try to respect the craft by wanting to get better. Like I'm not too big to say I want to learn, I want to make mistakes, and I want for folks to feel like they can they can watch it happen with me in real time. Yeah, it's well, it's all of those feelings come through. Um, the one thing that I get have been impressed with is. Um, the lyrical nature, actually, the, the poetic and the rhythmic nature of the lyrics. It's like they're not just um, like someone that I, would, I, w- I wouldn't compare her to you because I actually think yours is, has more depth. But uh, Taylor Swift's songs are, um, have hooks in them, and they're kind of cutesy lyric type things. And they're... And to be fair, you know, she, she writes what she knows, too. She, she, she has a relationship, and it goes right there on, out on a song. But your lyrics are, there is a, a rhythm to it. And I kind of saw it as, even, even though it's in English, that it is, from my perspective, almost coming out of the Somali rhythm of the music, but in word form. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, for sh- I think for sure. Um, Somalia is known historically as the nation of poets, and we talk to each other in poetry. Like in the morning, you greet each other with poetry. Um, poems are a huge part of our all of our ceremonies through marriage. Um, when, we, when something bad happens, we have poems that we read together. Like we speak in in re- poetry is just how we express ourselves, and it's something that were taught from a really young age to revere. I have, I know my favorite Somali poets of all time, and word is such a big part of our language. We have like five different words to describe love and, the, and different types of love. And um, I know that a lot of my Somali friends will agree with me when we say that as people where English is our second language, it, English oftentimes feels so limiting. And so mm-hmm. I think something that I've struggled with sometimes as a songwriter is learning how to say less and try to convey more of a feeling with less, given the fact that I'm trying to express feelings that the internal monologue in my brain is in Somali. And I think therein sometimes in translation, some of that, uh, some of that melodic nature carries through, but every Somali person I know, like their voice has a specific cadence that I really love. Like I, they speak in a really melodic way and, 
Um, it's, it's definitely something that's uh, in my music. My song, Look at What I'm Doing to You, is probably the most heavily influenced by Somali Nemo. There's Somali um, strings on it, Somali horns, Somali ad-libs. And the, the reason for that song even being that way is it's uh, presented as a love song, but it's a song about immigration. And it was like a experiment for me to try to figure out how to, type, to talk about what it feels like to be a displaced person without making people feel like I was preaching at them or standing on a soapbox and like in a way kind of trying to hide the medicine in the magic or the medicine in the food. Oh my God. I love that. I absolutely love that. And reflecting over back on that song, I, I mean, I see it. It's like, it's, um, but it's, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's intense and wonderful. Um, I just, just love that. So, but I want to get to the song still. Is with the music video, especially behind this, you know, a lot of the other songs, the lover is off camera and, you know, it's like you have to imagine who the lover is. In still, you depict who the lover is, and it is probably not who people would expect, um, <laughs> unless they knew more about you, obviously, up front. But um, tell us about that, and did you feel brave doing it? I felt terrified. I was so scared. I tried to back out of it a couple of times. Like the week before, I called the director and was like, "Actually, can we switch? Can we switch the lead out with my trainer? He's like this six foot five. He's a former football player. Like the most like typical like himbo macho man ever. And we changed our mind back to like honoring the truth of the song the morning of. Like that's how." to the wire it was the decision but um, I, I knew that I was going to come out by the end of the project because Beach was on the project and the first line I say I know you're somebody's girlfriend so I was like okay I have I have a certain amount of time and I want to get this out and I knew that I didn't want to do it at the start of rollout because I had gone viral a couple times on TikTok and a lot of the songs had moved in different ways and I wanted to drive home the fact that people would fall in love with these love songs and be able to relate with them and be able to see themselves in them before knowing who, it, who they were about. Like, Hate is one of my, I think, uh, best performing songs, and it's the song that people talk to me about the most. And no one knew when it came out that it was a T-for-T T love song, that it was a song a trans person wrote about another trans person. And in a little yeah. tongue-in-cheek way, the still music video became, like, kind of the gotcha of, like, can you believe this whole time? And honestly, it, 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 I wanted it to feel, I wanted for folks to get the point, which was that, like, queer people are just like you. And I wanted to use it as an opportunity to kind of show femme for femme love on screen in a different way. I think that a lot of the times we see it in a really hypersexualized way. And I wanted to show, like, the sweet romantic nature of what the, what the, what the love was about and and I also wanted to show that our fights were just like anybody else's and that our arguments were just like anybody else's and that our breakups hurt just as much as everybody else's. And so uh, I had had a conversation. We had multiple conversations with our team, but I'd had a conversation with um, a family member, I think, uh, right before, and they had pointed out to me that they're an elder and that in their lifetime and in the lifetime of their parents, we had never seen and they had never seen an out Somali person. Mm-hmm. Like we have... Iman the model and Mo Farah the Olympian and Kanan and all these Somali people who are part of the cultural zeitgeist and not one of them has ever been queer, it felt like a responsibility and a duty at that point to just be like, 
because I have the opportunity to show that we're here, let me just like take this, uh, I'll take the shot for all of our folks, from my younger uh, Somali kids and other kids who see themselves in me that like not only do we exist, you have someone out here who's willing to, you know what I mean, take that first for the rest of us so that if it makes it easier for everybody else, this all this music, all this like scariness around visibility feels worth it because we get to do that. No, absolutely. In fact, I would say there's going to be a large part of the audience that is not even going to see it like, oh, a big revelation of, um, you know, is, is, is queer or anything like that. They're going to see it just as, oh, that's a couple depicted. Um, you know, in fact, when I first watched it, I didn't, because my entree to your music was after reading the article that is now being published in The Blade and that, that was on the GLAD website um, first. So, you know, no surprise for me to see still. You know, it's like that, it just wasn't a surprise. So it didn't, didn't um, that wasn't like a big aha. I was much more invested in what was actually going on with the relationship and the music and the song itself um, and not worrying about who who the players were um you know that were being depicted but the where i think that ultimately is going to land with the most profound effect is there are young kids out there that are that are those people are that um you know see themselves and something you mentioned that, that earlier on in our conversation is that you know people like to talk about queer people like you know not in romantic they don't look at us as romantic beings they look at us as sexual beings or genderized beings but they don't step over and look at us as romantic beings and you see that in a lot of the politics now with with you know don't say gay and all this stuff because they don't have any problem saying heterosexual if they really think about what is really presented to kids. Kindergarten girls are dressed up as princesses and Cinderella wanting their prince. I mean, that's all put out there at a hugely young age. And that's just heterosexual, heterosexuality romance. And so, you know, it, I just think the representation of what you're doing is going to have a huge impact on a part of the audience that is just growing into themselves. And you've made it safe for them to just be themselves and not have to question it and not have to translate for other people. So I, you know, I think that that arc is wonderful in itself. I want to pivot though to the article that you wrote what and this letter that, that has been published in a couple of places. What was your, what was your impetus for, for um, putting your thoughts out in, in the written form instead of a musical form? I initially was going to put out the letter right when I came out. It was supposed to accompany the still music video initially. Um, and I think we had, we had made the decision really quickly, I think the day of, to, to maybe not do that, because I think that 
we just wanted people to have the opportunity to process. And I had written two letters when I was coming out. I, I wrote a letter to my father about coming out because I, I wanted to let him know before I told the world. I gave it to him the night before the music video came out. And then I wanted to put this letter out for all the young folks who are watching and all the all the folks who might see that video and, and feel all the things you were just you were just talking about before. I just wanted for folks to know that um, that I was doing this thing that I know uh, it feels scary and uh, includes a lot of like the journey of coming out has so much attached to it. Um, and I and I also I wanted to name that in doing it I wasn't. Um, unaware to, I wasn't unaware to all the factors that come with coming out, and I wanted to make sure that people understood that in me coming out, I wasn't trying to glorify the parts of out culture that I, I believe genuinely fail some of our queer and trans youth, you know, and so I just wanted for them to have another voice out there that was saying, like, yes, I'm doing this thing, but I'm doing this thing because I have pathways to the resources and the, the community and mm-hmm. the support that I'll need. And you don't have to think any less of yourself if you have to wait another year, if you have to wait another month or another day. You know, you are, I love you just the same, and you are valid in your identity, even if you tell no one else, you know? Yeah. Can you go into um, your, actually, a little more of a definition and your thoughts on what is the out culture? Um, Because you do write about that in the article. Um, what what yeah. do you see that pressure being? I I think that the the conversation around out culture was like an intracommunal one. Like it wasn't one that I wanted. I, I don't think straight people should be uh, should should be the people who are listening in on this part of the conversation. It was just me talking to other members of the queer community just around the commodification of pride and the commodification of our identities in a way that sometimes, like in my conversations with other black queer folks, black trans folks, black Muslim queer and trans folks, um, there's a lot of critiques that we have around around queer culture having elements of it that um, still perpetuate anti-blackness and xenophobia and kind of posit your authenticity based on like, who you can be and how loud you can be, you know, like the idea of like coming out the closet, even being a phrase or pride, you know what I'm saying? And uh, sometimes coming out isn't accessible for all people and, and the the culture that we've created around what it means to be out doesn't always take into to account poor queer and trans people, you know, like uh, uh, queer and trans people who are from maybe homes that are hyper-religious or hyper-conservative where it's not safe to do the same things. And so I I do think, uh, and I am critical of um, just how much we speak to like the pride aspect and the the, the commodification aspect and, and and the language that we create around what it means to like stand in your identity. We call it standing in your truth. And I just don't think that there's been enough uh, spoken about like our, our homeless, our homeless, a youth homelessness and uh, issue, mm-hmm. and and the fact that the, a majority of um, unhoused youth on the streets are queer and trans black youth and brown youth and and youth that come from um, low income households, and we tell them that like oh you're 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 proud of yourself if you tell everybody and that and you're you you are more honest or truthful in your representation and that your 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 identity is more valid if you if you tell these people who can literally harm you about this thing that they 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 can't handle or they can't hold and we posit shame over the people who have the most to lose in these conversations and so I just wanted to be 
in coming out and in participating in queer culture in this really visible way, I wanted to still speak to the folks on the margins and the folks that, like, have to live in the shadows and have to, you know, protect themselves and might lose all their access to resources if they say these things around people who just have not been taught to treat them well. It was just a – I just wanted to make sure people knew that I, I knew that their identity was valid and authentic no matter who they told and that if they were positing their safety in conversations around the authenticity of their identity that a lot of us had failed them, you know? Yeah, no, I, and thank you for verbalizing that because um, I've, I've written for quite a few years on, on, on civil rights and our struggle and, and all of that through the whole marriage equality thing and uh, I was wrote very visibly as being a gay dad raising two baby boys, which who are both now 21, so that'll give you an idea of how long I was both writing and, and living out, but um, I was very, very aware of exactly what you're talking about, because I've wrote, written about gay homelessness, especially gay teen homelessness, and um, or LGBTQ homelessness, and very aware that the encouragement to be prideful and, you know, come out and all that is dangerous in places, and that that safety is paramount over being outspoken, et cetera. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a really important point. And I do want to point out that in the article that is, is printed, um, it's, it's almost poetic where you take it in terms of the position for the people who are not accepting. You say it's a shame, it's a stain, and it should be the regret of a lifetime for someone to deny themselves the love of a queer person, queer or trans person, because they can't see beyond their own protection. And I could go on and on and on, but isn't unfortunately we have literally two minutes left. Um, so I'm going to give you the last word. What haven't I asked that we should talk about in two minutes? I think you hit the nail on the head, honestly. I think my intention was just to say that for as much as we speak about what it means to be prideful and, and out, I think that we should also be invested in making sure that the, those of us who can't be out and who can't be outwardly proud are safe and good. We need to be creating funds for more funds for black and brown, queer and trans, unhoused youth. We need to be doing more for those of us on the margins. And it is my honor, uh, it is my honor in this lifetime to be able to add advocate for such and I appreciate you both so much for having me it has been such an amazing conversation thank you for making space for me thank you for your work thank you for all that you've done for us I know that my ability to be able to move in this space is only because of folks like you and only because of the type of work you've done as well and so as a queer elder of mine I appreciate you I thank you and I thank you for having me today too well thank you for being you thank you for your talent thank you for sharing your talent um, and thank you for, for being beautiful, both musically and um, with your heart. Um, and for those listening, go by Risk. That is on iTunes, among other places. I'm sure it's on Amazon. Um, it has a deluxe version, Risk Reloaded. Um, so buy that version um, and listen to it. You won't be sorry. It is amazing. Um, and unfortunately, that is it for us for today. We will be back again next week. Um, check out the LA Blade at LosAngelesBlade.com 
and Edmund's article is in that art, in that magazine, and there will probably be another one written by me shortly thereafter as well um, on this subject and on her work. Um, so look forward to that. And for those of us at Radio LGBT Radio, we will talk to you again very, very soon. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. 